ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America. I'm getting a little bit worried. We were in here watching you, and the Taoiseach, when we were in, you're on camera, the Taoiseach, isn't that Senator Coons? What the hell have you been doing, Coons? Yeah, I don't know, man. At any rate, he's the senator from Delaware. This has been the President of the United States of America. May God have mercy on our souls. Stu does America. All right, stewdoesmerch.com. Use the promo code Stu10 to save 10%. If you're watching on YouTube, like this video right this very second. Subscribe to the channel, hit the bell for notifications, do all the things. Dave McCormick joins us to answer the question, are we a superpower in peril? China and Russia move their bromance to the next base. Mm. And we start, though, by doing the banking crisis. Nah, no big deal. What? I, I leave for a week and you guys can't even keep the banking system together. Come on, man. I just went on vacation. You can't even keep the banks running? Please. Last, uh, I guess, over the weekend, really, uh, UBS agreed to buy rival uh, Credit Suisse. This is a $3.2 billion deal. Now, like, they were valued at much, much more than that, like a week ago. This is one of these things. Fire sale, fire sale. Everything's available. Buy now. Now, I will remind you, Credit Suisse, it's, it's, a, it's a brand name you may be familiar with. Kind of one of the biggest banks in the world. At least they were until, you know, 24 hours ago. Um, created in 1856. Poof. All gone. All gone. But nothing to worry about here. We had, of course, the uh, Silvergate. We had a Signature Bank. And, of course, the big one that everyone kind of talked about a lot last week was SVB, Silicon Valley Bank. A bank that kind of just, again, poof. It was the one that funded all of these big uh, tech companies. And one day, it was totally fine, seemingly. I mean, it had some issues bubbling under, but no one was that panicked. And all of a sudden, everyone went on a bank run. Everyone kept tweeting about it. Uh, everyone pulled out their money. And then, poof, all gone. I actually, uh, <laughs> I have a, I, you know, had a, an account with this company that I never put any money in, but I was thinking about it at one point. And uh, it was really like an investment situation. And they email out on the day Silicon Valley Bank is collapsing. And they're like, hey. Just so you know, we had all of our money at Silicon Valley Bank. But you're going to be excited to hear we were able to get all of it out before the collapse. So no problems whatsoever. And then two days later, they're like, just so you know, all the deposits made at Signature Bank are OK. They apparently pulled all the money out of Silicon Valley Bank and moved it over to Signature Bank, which then collapsed two days later. Poof. Well, again, they get all their money back now because Joe Biden has stepped in and he saved all of us with our money. Thank you so much, Uncle uh, Joe. Now, it's interesting to watch the SVP thing, SVB thing come together because honestly, like that's a, a really famous bank. If you happen to be in the tech startup world, you know this bank. This is the bank you go to. They were willing to take, uh, you know, investor funds on all of these, uh, you know, uh, startups and all these, uh, you know, big, um, you know, capital raises from venture capitalists, and it just got stored in there. So there'd be tons and tons of cash in there, way above the $250,000 FDIC insurance limit. And Uncle Joe just came in and said, well, remember that FDIC thing we've been telling you about for the past, I don't know, 100 years? We are going to now come up with a new kind of thing where we are going to insure all of it, even if it's not $250,000. In some banks, but not all banks. So if you're not in one of those banks, and we're not going to tell you which ones they are, 
Um, you might want, you might be a little more panicked. You know, everyone, why doesn't everyone just put all of our money into Bank of America and then we can just go, it can go the easy way here. Because this is eventually where they want to end up anyway, isn't it? Now, uh, presidential candidate and uh, tech entrepreneur himself, Vivek Ramaswamy, um, pointed out an interesting thing from uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, he said, interesting uh, uh, proclamation from Silicon Valley Bank just over one year ago. And you think, well, what are they prioritizing at this place that just went out of business because they were so stupid? Ah, here it is. Silicon Valley Bank commits $5 billion in sustainable finance and carbon neutral operations to support a healthier planet. Well, thank God they did that. Now, did they? I hope they got that $5 billion to the planet before their entire business went belly up. There's also a very controversial op-ed that came out because this idea, and conservatives pointed this out, that Maybe one of the problems at this bank was they were so focused on diversity and climate that they weren't really paying attention to their business. Well, this, uh, this came out in an op-ed uh, by Andy Kessler over at Wall Street Journal. Who killed Silicon Valley Bank? Apparently no one at the firm perceived any risk from the Fed raising interest rates. Um, and he goes through a litany of different reasons why Silicon Valley Bank uh, is no longer Silicon Valley Bank. And, but what made news to the left... Not all the other things that they did and how it was related to their president and future presidential candidate, Joe Biden. It wasn't that. It was this second to last paragraph that reads this this way. Was there regulatory regulatory failure? Perhaps. SVB was regulated like a bank, but looked more like a money market fund. Then there's this. In its proxy statement, SVB notes that besides 91% of their board being independent and 45% women, they also have, quote, one black... Okay, end quote. A one LGBTQ plus. We don't know which one of those it is. It could be the plus. We don't know. And two veterans. I'm not saying 12 white men would have avoided this mess, but the company may have been distracted by diversity demands. Now, this had the left losing their minds. Oh, they went crazy on this one. They couldn't believe it was even remotely possible for this to be entertained as a thought. That focusing on something other than, you know, your business could possibly cause any problems whatsoever. And uh, here's uh, some of the fallout. Silicon Valley Bank went broke, but not because it was woke, says Verge. Why conservatives are trying to pass the buck on Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, it's the conservatives' fault because they have so much power right now. I mean, it's, just, it's unlimited, all, of their, all the power they hold. Silicon Valley Bank collapse concerns founders of color. I mean... Wouldn't it, also, wouldn't it concern all founders, just, just the founders of color are concerned on this one? They're actually, the coverage of this topic is actually woke. Black founders who banked with SVP <laughs> fear backsliding hard-won gains. Again, somehow this bank collapses about race. And then the New York Times, no, wokeness did not cause Silicon Valley Bank's collapse. Now, there's a lot of different uh, pieces out there, and I, I could easily cherry pick the worst pieces of liberal coverage. But let me go the other way here for a moment, even though the cherry picking, honestly, a little more fun. But let me go the other way for, for a second and bring you to the Plain English podcast. Plain English is uh, uh, part of the Ringer uh, network, and it's a, really, it's a good podcast. I really like it. Derek Thompson, I like listening to his thoughts. He's you know, more liberal than I am, but I do enjoy his, his commentary. On this one, though, I felt like they went totally off the rails. And, and, and there's a sort of easy thing to make. Like, it's easy to say, oh, well, 
Uh, that racist Wall Street Journal. And they got nothing to their commentary whatsoever. But have we really thought about this at all? Let me play a clip from their analysis of this paragraph in the Wall Street Journal op-ed. I'm not saying 12 white men would have avoided this mess, but the company may have been distracted by diversity demands, end quote. So uh, Kessler at the Wall Street Journal seems to think um, that if the bank had been entirely run by white men, we wouldn't have had this problem, which relies on the theory that no banks in the history of banking run by white men disproportionately have ever failed. Uh, mm. Ben, how, how do you feel about this particular take? I don't think we need to take a step further and make it any more difficult than it needs to be. Uh, Hang know, on, can I, can I stand with Kessler for a second? I'm only kidding. Please attempt. <laughs> no, I am, no, that's your zag? Okay. It's repugnant. I can't believe that they allowed that to be published. Wow. They couldn't believe they even allowed it to be published. Wow, that's a, quite a claim. And, I, you know, of course, it relies on completely ignoring the rest of the article. In fact, it relies on completely ignoring the rest of the sentence. Uh, as, uh, as Derek Thompson said here, it, uh, the journal seems to think that if the bank had been entirely run by white men, we wouldn't have had this problem. I'll give you the quote once again. I'm not saying 12 white men would have avoided this mess. That's in the same sentence. It's literally in the same sentence where he says, that's not what I'm saying. But we're supposed to ignore that because it's, it, it's the right and just thing to do to come out and just be overly critical of this. I love the guy coming in with a tough stand of, I think this is wrong. I've got to say something. I've got to say the unpopular thing here. Oh, yes, the unpopular thing is we should just fold to every woke rule when we were writing something that's supposed to be getting people to think a little bit. I will also note that uh, no one said that 12 white people would have been able to avoid this mess. And certainly no one said that there has never been a banking collapse from the times when only white people were on boards of banks. No one. He doesn't say that in the article. Here's some of the stuff he does say. Mistake number one for Silicon Valley Bank. They reached for yield, just as Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers did in the 2000s. With few loans, these investments were the bank's profit center. Everyone except SVP management, it seems, knew interest rates were heading up. Yet SVP froze and kept business as usual. Could white people do that? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Problem number two, is it race yet? No. SVP misread its customers' cash needs. Risk management seemed to be an afterthought. That's problem number two. Problem number three, uh, they were not uh, qu quickly selling equity to cover losses. After all of the explanations for all of these problems at the very end, it does mention, hey, you know, they also seem to really be focused on diversity. But that's just part of the problem. I also think this is part of the distraction here. As this banking crisis, if it develops, and I hope it doesn't develop into something worse, it may. Um, but, I mean, just the fact that Credit Suisse has fallen uh, and it shows that it's a global situation at some level. And that's like a really, if that's all it is, that's a massive, massive thing. But a lot of this is trying to hide what the Joe Biden effect is here. And the Joe Biden effect is real. Uh, Joe Biden came in and spent lots and lots and lots of money told us that inflation was going to be non-existent. Then he told us it was going to be transitory. Then he told us it was definitely here, but we've, uh, I don't know, come off the very, very highest highs for 40 years uh, to something just as bad as the you know, past 39 years. And we're supposed to celebrate that victory, I guess. But the bottom line is Joe Biden came in. He spent a ton of money. It made inflation worse, which meant that Joe Biden's Fed had to raise rates, 
which led to this strategy that SVB had, and it was a bad strategy, but it wouldn't have blown up without Joe Biden. Without Biden doing the things that Joe Biden did, this probably does not happen at all. It's really important to understand that. And if you didn't, I don't know how much people covered this, the details of it, but basically they took in deposits, uh, you know, and they invested it in long-term bonds. So they couldn't get the money out when people started pulling their money out and everything collapsed. They should have done short-term bonds or something much more easy to access so that they could have given people back their deposits when they wanted to. But these are, this is a straight line effect from Joe Biden's policies. And it's happening under his watch. And he is not completely responsible. This bank, not every bank is falling, right? Some people saw what Biden was doing and reacted appropriately, but many did not. And this is something that can really, I mean, if this turns into a real crisis, this can really hurt Joe Biden. By the way, Biden is still running around saying it's not a bailout. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. You taxpayers are never going to get touched with this. We always bear the brunt of this, and it's just a matter of time to see how that exactly plays out. But we always wind up paying for this in the end, and we likely will in this case at all. They went on, though, to, uh, to, to focus on this point a little bit more on uh, the Plain English podcast. Listen. I will only add this to Ben's point about the Andy Kessler take, which is that the Wall Street Journal has been publishing continuously since the 1880s. There were banking panics in 1884, 1890, 1899, 1901, 1907, and 1908 when the banks were exclusively run uh, by men who were white. So it's even in this particular newspaper, it, it is, and I agree with Michael in his first comment, it's really an astonishing take to have been clown published. Show. Serious clown show. It's a serious clown show, boys and girls. Nothing to it. Is that true, though? Because we all know that, obviously, it is 100% accurate that plenty of bank runs and bank failures happened way before people were putting black people and Hispanic people in LGBTQIA2+. And then there's one more Q, I think, in there. uh, People in that community on banking boards. So we know that, like, this did happen before. So what should we learn from this? Hmm. What's interesting here is that there are lots of problems at SBB Bank. There are lots of problems at the banks in 1899 and 1907, too. And I can't go through and honestly, with any real authority, and tell you what all the problems were in 1907 with whatever bank happened to fail or whatever series of banks happened to fail. We don't know. We do know they had one weakness, though. One weakness they had was they weren't considering everybody, right? They weren't making the decisions based on the best people they could hire because they weren't even considering, in most cases, black people, Hispanic people, LGBTQQIA2 plus people. They weren't doing that. At that point, it was almost, even women were almost uh, excluded completely from the running of these banks. And we know that when you exclude a large piece of the population, you're not going to get the best people. It's impossible. You're not considering everyone, right? We know that's a problem. The problem, of course, And one problem we can identify from all of those early bank runs is that to avoid a bank run, to have a a, a bank that's run the best way possible, what you need to do is have the best people working there, the people who know the business the best, the best, most qualified people, right? That's obvious. And because they weren't looking at black people or Hispanic people or women or LGBTQIA2 plus people, we know They weren't doing that. We know that. We know one of the problems with all of those bank failures back in the 1800s and 1900s is that they were making decisions based 
on skin color and not merit. They were making decisions based on skin color or sexuality or genitals and not merit. That was a problem that I think we would all look back at and agree on, right? We'd all say, yeah, those banks should have been looking at everyone. If, the, if a black banker came in and said, I'm, I'm the best person for this job, and they didn't hire him because they wanted an all-white board, or a woman came in and said, I'm really smart, I went to college, I've got this incredible degree, I can help you manage this risk in a way you didn't think of, and they didn't hire him because she was a woman, we all would understand that that would be wrong, right? So what have we learned here by that lesson? Because what we're seeing now in banks all across the world are people doing the same exact thing. People who are not looking at everyone and judging who the best people are based on merit, but instead excluding certain skin colors, excluding certain characteristics, excluding certain sets of genitals, and trying to fit into a predetermined formula how many different types of genitals and different types of sexual interests and different types of skin color and different types of backgrounds that they should be plopping on a board rather than looking for the best people possible. Could this have happened with 12 white men? Of course it could. No one's saying it couldn't. Has it happened before with 12 white men? A hundred percent, yes. But what we're doing now is a repeat of what they were doing then. If a black person comes in and is the most qualified for your bank in 1907, you should put that person on your board. They should have done that then. If a white guy comes in in 2023 and is the most qualified person for that role, you should put them on the board. You shouldn't think about whether they're a white male or not. Can you find qualified African-Americans, women, LGBTQQIA2 plus community members? Sure you can. But they should get those jobs solely when they are the most qualified person to do them. That shouldn't be controversial. You shouldn't be making decisions based on skin color in the year 2023. That should be easy. It was embarrassing back in 1899. It was embarrassing back in 1907 when they did those things. It should be embarrassing now. In fact, I'd argue it's much more embarrassing and arguably more damaging. Because back in 1900, they were uh, eliminating, in theory, from hiring uh, at some of these banks, 20% of the population. That's really bad. You should not do that. That's terrible. Do not eliminate 20% of the population when you're looking to hire someone. But what are these banks doing today? Some of them are looking for jobs and posting them and only looking at 2% of the population and ignoring 98%. Is that better? I would argue it's worse. Are we going in the right direction with this idiotic DEI approach? I don't think we are. And it should make sense and connect with everybody immediately when you're criticizing those people for being racist in 1907 for doing the same things you're cheering on in 2023. This banking crisis may or may not turn up to an explosion. And certainly, this is not the only thing that caused this. As the article clearly stated over and over again in the Wall Street Journal. But what I will say is we should all wake up and start recognizing that the only thing 
that should be on your mind when you're hiring someone is their merit. Are they the best person for the job? That's the beginning and the end of the decision process. So if you're watching Netflix without using our friends over at ExpressVPN, you may as well be paying for a gym membership, but only using the treadmill. Why do I mean that? Well, you know, obviously, I didn't come up with that analogy because I don't even know. Is there a gym in this area? Who knows? But with ExpressVPN, you can change your online location so that Netflix thinks you're somewhere else. And that's handy because they have almost 100 different server locations and you can gain access to thousands of new shows. Believe it or not, this actually works and, you know, it works for other streaming services as well. YouTube, BBC iPlayer, a bunch of different stuff. You can watch shows from all over the world, get access to different things you don't have access to here. There are a lot of VPNs out there, but with ExpressVPN, you get blazing fast HD streaming speeds. Plus, it's compatible with your, all of your devices, with your phone, your laptop, your media consoles. You know, I got to try this with, uh, you don't listen to this, but I, you know, as you know, I'm America's only Toronto Blue Jays fan. A lot of times I get blacked out of that stuff because it's in Canada. I wonder if I can ExpressVPN over the border there a little bit. Do a little, uh, you know, immigration just temporary immigration, watch my Blue Jays content, and then come back. I'm just saying. Uh, by the way, ExpressVPN encrypts your data, so you can browse the web securely without worrying about someone looking over your shoulder. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Don't forget, use my link, expressvpn.com slash stew. Get signed up to this. You're going to use it all the time. Expressvpn.com slash stew. Get your money's worth by going to expressvpn.com slash stew. Get an extra three months of ExpressVPN free at expressvpn.com slash stew. I'm happy to welcome David McCormick to the studio. He's a former U.S. Senate candidate for Pennsylvania, former CEO of Bridgewater Associates, and author of the brand new book, Superpower in Peril, a battle plan to renew America, which is available now wherever you get your books. Make sure you go out and uh, get this. We were talking off the air a little bit. Like, you released this book in the middle of, like, all of your areas of expertise. <laughs> chaos. Yeah, and chaos in all of those areas. So yeah. it's, it's a really important read. We were just talking about the, the, the banking uh, situation. And I think one of the... One of the pieces of this that I don't think has had enough press, certainly to my liking, is the idea that really there's a direct line from the Biden presidency and the Biden policies in the way inflation came in and then it turned into rate hikes that led to this collapse of SVP and, and also all of the other stuff that's going on around the world. This is being completely ignored by the media right now. Yeah, I, c- I couldn't agree more. First of all, thanks for having me, Stu. It's good, good to be on the show. Um, yeah, the, the economic context is really important because we're cascading uh, to, to a crisis on multiple levels because the spending under Joe Biden has been excessive, 40% increase in discretionary spending, $31 trillion of debt, the biggest debt in the history of the world. Uh, and, and of course, easy monetary policy, which has been around for a long time, but persisted under Joe Biden, even though it was clear that the Fed needed to raise interest rates more incrementally sooner. And so what that's created is this huge hole in the balance sheets of most of the banks because the, the treasuries, the fixed income things they had in their, their balance sheet are now worth a lot less. And so that's the big picture. And unfortunately, we're going to have to continue to have high interest rates to keep inflation in check. And inflation is what kills everyday Americans because you're living week to week. Or if you're on fixed income, it, it puts this enormous pressure. So that's the backdrop. And then we have this Silicon Valley Bank, 
which was terribly, terribly managed, unbelievably poorly managed. And we had regulators in San Francisco that were supposed to oversee this that completely missed the boat. And, um, and so this crisis is a, is a product of big picture, what Biden's done, and in the, in, the, in the narrow sense, this terrible management on the part of SVB. Mm. Well, that's that's today's crisis. We have plenty more going on. You know, the book is called Superpower in Peril. Why did you write it? Well, I wrote it because a couple of years ago, long before I decided to run for the Senate, I felt this t- terrible sense that America was going in the wrong direction economically for the reasons we just talked about. National security wise, this rise of China that's challenging us on multiple fronts and spiritually. Our institutions are getting chipped away, our families, the basic understanding of what makes America special. And, and we're in decline. And 80% of Americans agree we're in decline. And so um, that was the, the, the thing that got me started and really wanting to write a book. But I also believe that we could, we could get out of this. So just like decline's not inevitable, neither is a renewal. It depends on what we do. So this is the what to do book. Yeah. And I essentially lay out a plan for educating our people, for confronting China, and for securing America. And, and that's the kind of leadership we're gonna to need to, to turn things around. We're on the brink of, of losing all that we love about, about this great country. Let's talk about the premise here because I, I am generally speaking, I think, especially as it relates to America, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan, so I'm, I'm you know. Other I'm, than I'm, that, yeah. I, I tend to be pessimistic on <laughs> yeah. that front. Um, but when it comes to America, I'm an optimistic guy. I feel like we're gonna get through most of these challenges. It does feel more and more challenging to hold that line recently. As you mentioned, 80% of people see us going in the wrong direction. And most of the time I look at that and say, that's sad. I'm I'm sad so many Americans feel that way. But lately it feels more like reality. Like they're just recognizing the reality that we are actually a superpower in peril. Yeah, well, we are. And we've had a history in, in our country of getting to the brink, getting to the edge of the cliff and pulling ourselves back. And that's been the American story. No country has been as resilient as we have, but we faced our challenges. And I remember it uh, in the late 70s where uh, Jimmy Carter administration, stagflation, double-digit inflation, gas prices, you know, terrible uh, challenges on the world stage with Iran and our hostages. And four years later, it was morning in America under Ronald Reagan. And the economic policies, the leadership, the build back of the military brought America back. And 80% of the people in America thought the country was headed in the wrong direction then. So the difference between success and failure, between decline and renewal, is about leadership. And uh, so I'm optimistic because I believe we'll find leaders that can take us forward. And we as conservatives need to have an agenda that those leaders can can implement. I think importantly, that agenda has to be forward looking, right? No doubt about it. A lot of the politics right now, I feel like are looking back at, you know, events, which, you know, you can find importance in some of those to discuss. But if we do not have something to get people excited, I mean, like there's a lot of criticism of Newt Gingrich, for example, you know, going, you know, back to the 90s. But like what he had. He had a plan. A plan. He actually presented people with a plan that they were excited about. And that wasn't based on a big personality. I mean, Newt Gingrich was on TV a lot, but he wasn't Ronald Reagan. Right. Like there, it was about the ideas. I could, I completely agree. And, and you know, the people that I met on the campaign trail in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, they're angry, and they have every right to be angry. And it's a balancing act because if you're running for office or talking about the future, you have to hold the progressives accountable for the terrible policies that got us here. You have to call balls and strikes. I agree with that. But the people that I'm dealing with on the campaign trail when I ran for office, how are we gonna fix inflation? How are we gonna fix fentanyl? How are we gonna fix the fact that the communities are getting torn apart? We've gotta have a plan 
to take them forward. We got to have uh, leaders who can win primary elections and win generals and lead us uh, lead us forward. And that's uh, that's what the book is about. You talk a lot about um, uh, kind of rebuilding the foundation of the country. You know, th- whether it's through education, it's through uh, technology, and in some ways embracing that technology and using that as a step forward. I think right now we're at that point, especially with AI coming out and everything. Yeah. we're getting to that point where people are getting scared. I think of technology yeah. again. How do we harness this great power to our advantage? Well, we have to go to the gym. That's yeah. what I had to say. We have to go to the gym at home. You know, we can, I, don't like, I hate your approach so far. It's a terrible <laughs> we idea. Talk, we could talk about what to do with China, and there's a whole chapter of the book on how to confront China. But part of it is we need to build our muscle, and the world's changing. And we need to have an education system that changes to accommodate that. We need to have technology policy that keeps us up uh, with the Chinese, the Chinese are winning the technology game. They have a plan, we don't have a plan. Just to give an example of this, in 1950, when we were the leading technology uh, economy in the world, we spent twice as much on R&D uh, as a country, as a percentage of GDP that, than we do today. Mm. Right? We need to invest in R&D, and we need to help channel private sector capital um, into the areas that make the most sense for our future. Artificial intelligence is an example. So we should be scared on two fronts. We should be scared because the Chinese are in the lead in most of the, those technologies. We should also be scared because some of those technologies put us at real risk. And in the book, I talk about reining in big tech a little bit to make sure that things like social media, which is incredibly left-leaning, and changing the narrative and that the actual marketplace of ideas in our country, that needs to be fixed. And I'm a, I'm a guy who mostly says little government's better, yeah. but in some cases we need to have the government more involved and one of those is, is big tech because the social media is, is really taking us in, in a terrible direction in terms of eroding our values in the national conversation. Yeah, I mean, it feels like you know, we still are leaders in technology, but we lead in these meaningless areas like social media. We have a bunch of big social media companies that are, I think, doing real damage to the country. Doing real damage. A good example of this. I mean, like it's like it's so hard to imagine that COVID, which which uh, was created in Wuhan, might somehow be connected to a Wuhan research facility. Ah, it's crazy. That, that does research in such viruses, right? So the idea w- was obvious in the beginning, and yet the liberal media, and in particular social media, anyone that raised that possibility was said to be a conspiracy theorist and you know uh, trying to polarize the country. That was just obvious. And h- here we are three years later, and we're now discovering that our intelligence agencies think that's a real possibility. Why was that? Well, the reason for that is you have this echo chamber that's just reinforcing a particular ideology of progressivism and liberal ideas. And we got to fix that, not because we want to promote just conservative ideas, because we want to promote truth and an active uh, marketplace where real ideas can be debated. Yeah, Uh, and that seems like so far away, unfortunately, right now. Um, Let's go to China here for a second, because... um, it, there was a time where, because America was a superpower, or, or the superpower, one of two, um, we had so much influence that without military might, we were able to influence events to come back towards sanity often. We were able to put down uh, you know, people, countries that would rise up with you know, poisonous ideologies and, and practices. It feels like we're on the opposite side of that with China. Yeah. It feels like they hold the cards in this battle now because yeah. we've gone down the wrong road for such a long time. How do we address the China situation when we can't even get them to release basic documents about uh, Wuhan? About yeah. Wuhan? I mean, that, that, that should be something that sh- was demanded by every country two weeks into you know, February 2020. We can't even get that information, let yeah. alone take them on. How do we do this? 
Yeah, well, there's a whole chapter in the book on superpower peril and how to confront China. But I'd say three things briefly. One, we have to be strong. So, you know, the most important thing in, in a bar fight or in geopolitics is, is to actually be strong, regardless of what you say. So we need to build our strength at home. We've let that slip in the ways that I've said. We need to confront China. We need to make ourselves less dependent on China by bringing home um, key industries, strategic decoupling. We need, to, we need to constrain and not let companies invest in China in ways that helps the Chinese military. We need to hold China accountable for things like Wuhan. So it's a whole of nation strategy for dealing with China. But the third thing, and, and what's happening in the news reinforces it, we need, to, we need to be leaders. America needs to be a leader in the world, and we need to stand tall with our allies. And what's happened is this is an example with the Chinese brokering this deal with Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Perfect example, there's a vacuum. President Biden has created a vacuum in the Middle East. The fact that they don't feel confident in Saudi Arabia that the Americans are gonna be there for them as a, as a key ally is part of the thing that pushed and that the Americans were also gonna do a deal with the Iranians. That's brought Iran and, and uh, Saudi Arabia together with China as the broker. So part of filling that space internationally is leading. And that doesn't mean we get overextended or sacrifice U.S. interest. It's in America's interest to play that leadership role in the world. Hmm. Um, how, because you mentioned uh, the Saudi Arabia situation, and China's very much involved in that. They're also very much involved in the Russia-Ukraine situation. Right. They say they're going there to broker peace. I don't know if you believe that. I tend not to. Um, it's, they are signaling this is a new, a new era. A new era. A new era. They're, they're, they're signaling that the, the, the days of America being the sole superpower are done. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they will be right unless we change our direction. And our direction requires us to build muscle at home and engage abroad. And that's what superpower and peril is really about. And, uh, you know, we've done this before. We can do it again. But it requires, A, a diagnosis of the problem. So I try to do that in the book. Hey, we, we're, in, we're at risk. Yeah. And here's how we got here. And then a plan for going forward. And this is basic. This is what you do in a company. If a company's going the wrong direction, you need to do a turnaround. You identify the problem, lay forward a plan, and you execute on it. Um, I'm not suggesting that America's is easy to run as a company, but that same, those same ideas need to be put in place. And uh, last one for you. What's the optimal? What are we looking to do? Do we want, is the optimal situation for the world that America is the lone superpower and our, you know, our principles and, and foundations lead the world? Is it that we're more, we get to a place where we can calm these things and pull back again? What's the, what's the optimal at the end well, of Well, America as, as the superpower is the optimal in the following sense. Um, the relative strength of other parts of the world, our leadership need not be at the expense of other countries prospering and growing. Right. But American leadership in the world, both as an economic powerhouse, as a military powerhouse, given our, our ideals, given the place that we want to play in ensuring stability is better for America. Um, so we don't, the only reason we need to compete as with China as an adversary is because of the aggressive posture China has taken to try to displace America in the world. And there's lots of evidence around that. And that was clear um, even 15 years ago, but it became very clear under the rise of President Xi. And President Xi has adopted an aggressive posture vis-a-vis America that has put us now in a position where we have to, we have to treat uh, China as the risk, the threat, and the adversary that it is. Mm. The book is Superpower in Peril, a, new, a Battle Plan to Renew America uh, by Dave McCormick, and it's available now. Make sure to grab a copy or two today. Dave, thanks so much for coming on the program. Hey, Stu, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So 
Sometimes I wonder if AI is just writing the news right now and just specifically designing it to uh, further what I previously believed. Uh, Tell me if you're in the same position after hearing these stories. CNN crew robbed while covering street crime in San Francisco. Oh, come on. Did chat GPT. You're being too obvious here. Uh, The CNN producer tweeted, got robbed again. Um, uh, they, the reporter and the producer were at city hall in San Francisco to do an interview for CNN. We had to, uh, had security to watch our rental car and crew car. Thieves did this in under four seconds. She showed a picture of a broken window. Security stopped the jerks from stealing other bags, but seriously, this is ridiculous. So again, they hired private security to protect their car while they did an interview about street crime and it still got broken into. Um, she had a bunch of stuff stolen. She said her, including her ID. Could she get on a plane when she was leaving? The answer to that is yes, because apparently the people at San Francisco airport are so used to this happening that uh, that they just knew what to do. Um, And, of course, they were there to actually cover street crime. Uh, Here's another one. San Francisco Supervisor Hillary Ronan begs for more police in her district after voting to defund the police in 2020. She says... Now, I've been begging this department to give the Mission District, where she lives, what it deserves in terms of police presence all year long. And I've been told time and time again, there are no officers that we can send a mission. Of course, this is her in 2020. Uh, um, I want to make it clear that I believe strongly in defunding the police and reducing the number of officers on our force. For decades, we've had an imbalance in our city's budget with hundreds of millions going to SFPD to have them do work they are not qualified to do. Also, remember the whole thing about us? Uh, oh, we were we were uh, conspiracy theorists for believing that they want to get rid of gas stoves. Well, California regulators are now trying to ban gas appliances in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, this one does not apply to gas stoves. It applies to other um, uh, uh, appliances that use gas. But, you know, we're on this road. And of course, the most I would say the most understandable and uh, story of the entire week from San Francisco Goats run loose in San Francisco and no one knows where they came from. That actually is like the most sane piece of news from San Francisco. Everything else is completely insane. The fact that there's just a pack of wild goats running loose throughout the cities, uh, as, as the city center of one of our largest um, uh, cities is not at all surprising. That actually seems totally legitimate in comparison to the people who are going to cover street crime and actually having their car broken into and the people who are saying, hey, we've been begging for more police when they're on record from just a couple of years ago saying they wanted to defund the police entirely. The goat story is the most sane part of our news today. You want to save some money? I think everybody does, especially with, you know, the, the inflation going through the roof. Let me give you this. Upside. It's an incredible app for anyone who buys gas. That's probably you, unless you've got one of those fancy electric cars. Do you buy groceries, though? I bet you do that. Do you dine out? I bet you do that. I know I do. Probably too much, honestly. With Upside, you can get cash back on every purchase that you have for everything from your favorite hobbies uh, to your just, I mean, I guess my favorite hobby is eating. So it kind of works together there. It's basically just uh, cash back for you doing you. Get started. Get the uh, free Upside app. Use the promo code STU. Get an extra 25 cents back for every gallon on your first tank of gas. I got 35 cents back, I think, on mine. So it can be even higher than that. Uh, 35 cents on an entire gallon of 
gas. That's serious savings, especially right now in this economy. You can claim an offer uh, for whatever you're buying on Upside, and this is all over. You'll see it on a little map. You can see all the places to go. It's, it's really great. Uh, and then you pay as usual with a credit card. You don't have to come out here. Please scan my app. None of that stuff. Uh, you just take the steps in the app and you'll get paid. Plus, Upside doesn't sell your personal information to third parties. They know your information is your information. Upside users are earning hundreds of dollars per year. They got a 4.8 star rating on the App Store. Download the free Upside app and use the promo code STU. Get an extra 25 cents back for every gallon on your first tank of gas. It's 25 cents back for every gallon on your first tank of gas. Use the promo code STU. It's the Upside app. Back in, uh, what was it, 2016, Gwyneth Paltrow um, was skiing. And uh, there was a retired optometrist. And they kind of came together. And they crashed into each other. And this is very sad. Of course, maybe if he was not a retired optometrist and he was an active one, he'd be able to see Gwyneth coming on the slopes. Though I will say, if Gwyneth turns sideways, she's very thin. So who knows uh, how that would work. But they got in an accident, and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is going to have to take the stand in the civil case. $300,000 she's being sued for in this, uh, in this uh, skiing accident. We don't know how that one's going to come out, but we'll keep you updated because I'm sure you're on the edge of your seat for that one. But I will say you may be on, you may be on the edge of your seat if you participate in this next one. Um, because she was, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was also on a podcast called The Art of Being Well with Dr. Will Cole, one of my favorite wellness podcasts or something. And um, she was asked, what's the craziest thing you've done? She said... Well, she's, she's used ozone therapy rectally. Yes, the good old rectal ozone therapy. <laughs> One of the best things you can do. Now, I don't know what rectal ozone therapy is, nor do I ever want to learn one more thing about it. But I would say this. Is it possible? I'm just throwing this out there. If you need to use this in the trial, let me know. Because is it possible Gwyneth crashed into this optometrist because she was using rectal ozone therapy? If you think of whatever that might be, Think of skiing with that going on. It would be really difficult to keep a straight line. You know, you'd be very uncomfortable, very possible you crash into the nearest optometrist. I don't know if that was the cause. We don't know for sure. But I will say this. You're going to be surprised here. Doctors say, no, don't try ozone rectal therapy. Your tip for the day. Okay, so here's what happened. We talked about San Francisco and some of the crime problems they're having there. Well, it's happening in a lot of big Democrat-run cities, including, yes, Philadelphia, the home of the most uh, incredible and positive fans of any football team in the world. And in Philly, uh, they've had some crime problems. They're a little, there's been some theft, uh, some other incidents at Lowe's stores in Philly. So they've come up with a solution. Security robots. Yes, the security robots are at Philly's uh, Lowe's stores, some have already been named snitch bots. And basically what they do is they go around and they see if, there's, if they detect any suspicious activity. We have no idea how that works. Um, they will uh, alert somebody and I guess human beings can come over and check out the situation. So they're kind of like, you know, they're just basically uh, telling, uh, telling on the people who are there. But I just don't feel like this is going to work out well. Again, I love, I love Philly. I, you know, I'm an Eagles fan. I love them. But I will say they don't have the best... Uh, the best history with robots. There was a, do I need to bring up Hitchbot? Hitchbot, there he is. First smiling picture, Hitchbot. He was a, it was a Canadian robot. It was going to be, uh, people would pick it up and he would hitchhike across the United States. And he was totally fine. He made it like all the way around the country. And then it got to Philly and they decapitated it. 
RIP. Poor Hitchbot. See you tomorrow. Go birds. <laughs>